history uncensored fuck it is good to say that again i know it has been a really long time so thank you so much for coming back to the history uncensored podcast as i know i've been gone i'm an asshole but if you curious if you were curious about where i was Follow me on Twitter at Seth for Nerds or follow me on Facebook on the History Uncensored podcast. You can also email me at my new email, historyu.pod at gmail.com. You can do suggestions, topics, ideas, criticisms, or just to say hi. I had to start a new job, uh, not in podcasting, and that has greatly hindered my ability to put out podcasts. So I apologized, but family comes first, so I need to do that. Uh, first off, it should not have been that long uh, since I released the last one. And if you're in the future, you don't need to listen to this part. I'm sorry. I've been gone, laid dormant. My ambitions that, uh, you know, that have, I've kind of started with this podcast and my overall goal to spread the truths about the history that I'm covering. In other words, the next thing I want to say is the support that I have received while I was away was phenomenal. And if you reached out to me, I can't begin to tell you how much I appreciated it. One podcast did so in particular, and that was the Whining About Her Story podcast. Podcast with two women drinking wine and talking over the history of women. It's unbelievable. They highlight women from a perspective that I could never achieve myself. Which is perfect, because this episode is a uh, if you could guess by the title, a history about a, a woman, a podcast about a woman in history, Theodora. But as I said, being a guy, it's hard for me to do, and I can't really capture that perspective, but these two ladies do it perfectly. Again, it's called Whining About Her Story. And ladies, if you are listening, thank you for the support. And here is a little teaser that they made for this episode. So I'll go ahead and play that now. Hey everyone, I'm Kelly. And I'm Emily, and we're from Whining About History. Ever notice how women seem to be missed, forgotten, or maybe even purposely left out of history books? We did, so we decided to take the his out of history and make it herstory. Each episode, we discuss the lives and general awesomeness of these historical wonder women, all while having a glass of wine. Or maybe a bottle. Come join us on all of your favorite podcast platforms at WAHpod on Instagram, WAH underscore pod on Twitter, and at Whining About History dot com remember that's no h or e in whining see you, see you soon. soon cheers all right thanks for listening to that again whining about her story check it out it's awesome they're phenomenal and they really helped me while i was away back to this podcast when i do a history of women podcast when i when i pick somebody that i want to cover it always almost brings me to tears how how little women have been recognized throughout history it, it's the history of women is so dark and it's clouded by the minds importance of men and their unjustified patriarchy basically for the entirety of humankind some listeners may point out matriarchal societies in the past say, hey, but th th these things existed. These minuscule opportunities to women outside of the modern world existed. 
Yeah, but any real historian of women understands that they move the world, usually in unseen fashion. They, the light and the shadow, filtering the words of men destined to be heard throughout the world. I want to seek these opportunities that women have taken for themselves, that generated waves, those waves that can still be felt in our modern society today. And I already mentioned this, but our topic today is none other than Theodora. Theodora, Theodoran in Greek means gift of God. I know I usually want to take women who are not royalty and highlight them, but Theodora is worth accentuating in her role. She came from very humble beginnings. We have the Empress Theodora, the savior of Byzantium and Constantinople. One of the reasons I chose Theodora is that she seems to me a woman in my mind, the, the modern sense of what a, a woman should be. Independent, intelligent, shrewd, compassionate, Theodora embodies so much of what we love in a story. The underdog, beauty, darkness, light, and good, and bad. You get the fucking idea. A self-made woman who conquered an empire in an age when women did very little. There are two main sources I used for this episode. Uh, the books Theodora, Empress of Byzantium and Theodora, Actress, Empress and Saint. I will have links to both of them in the description, so make sure to check that out. They were phenomenal. But before we really get into talking about Theodora, let's place her in history. What the fuck was going on before the Empress stepped into that role as we will come to see it was a life filled with intrigue and hardship from start to finish it was the start of the last millennia before the world would be reborn according to the bible this should have been a time of learning of happiness of acceptance and harsh lessons this is also a time when rome had been sacked by the vandals Gaul won its freedom from Western Rome in, nine, in 486 behind the might of Clovis I. And all in all, the glory of Western Rome had died. No longer real empire, chaos, confusion, and dissonance reigned supreme in the land of Caesar. That means the East, Constantinople, had to pick up the slack to become the jewel of the Western world lying on its eastern border. It had to protect the legacy of the Roman Empire. Christianity was in full swing, and it seems with the fall of Western Rome and the rushing in of a new era, Our Lady had to be born, born into what many people and some historians call the beginning of the Dark Ages. Upon looking back at this precarious point in time, it is hard not to agree, but here shines a diamond in the dark, reflecting but a flickering candlelight of what was to come. Enter Theodora. Born around 495-ish, she was born one of three girls to stage performers in Constantinople. The importance of this part of her stains the rest of her life, either for good or bad. And to this day, Theodora has a portrait that rests in the mosaics of the Basilica of San Vitale in Ravenna. Her portrait exudes an authority that lingers like a seduction in the visitor's memory. And yet, many of her admirers are hard-pressed to link her to an exact event, or even to situate her in the immense grid of space and time, as we just did. Like almost all women in history, 
Theodore's own life was not written by her or even another woman. It was written by a man. And his name was Procipius. This is not his story, uh, probably because I'm fairly positive he considered both Justinian and Theodora demons. Not just like, oh yeah, they're demons. No, actual fucking demons. This is the time when Theodora lived, right? When people felt the hand of God guiding their lives. They believed in a God who would take note of their sins, a God who would protect them in their faith or punish them terribly for the impieties. She lived at a time when people believed it was possible for the lucky or pious to see the angels who gathered around the altar when the priest prepared the communion offering. These same people believed, too, that it was entirely possible to encounter a menacing demon walking down the street. Which, to me, sounds plainly terrifying. Um, kind of... Oh, what's that TV show? You guys know it, the Sam and Dean thing, whatever. Uh, see a demon, that sounds awful. Back to the podcast. This also at a time when everyone knew that raids from across the Imperial frontier might shatter the lives, their lives at any moment, that their empire was not one, not what it once was. They knew that God's vengeance could be even more terrible than the pain caused by their human enemies. Contemporary chronicles refer to natural disaster as the wrath of God and the Roman empire in the sixth century had more than its share of disasters in the form of violent earthquakes into all enveloping tsunamis, it was also a time of war, riot, and during Justinian's reign, plague. Constanto Constantinople would be wrecked uh, by its own citizens and again by the wrath of God. And it was in Theodora's and Justinian's time, too, that the bubonic plague, as I mentioned, first came to Europe and the Mediterranean lands. To say that Theodora lived in tumultuous times would be a bit of an understatement. Perhaps that's exactly why she was able to accomplish what she did. The world was rapidly changing. Does that sound familiar, right? All the time, our world, especially the world we live in today, is rapidly changing. And if the people who are leading it fail to take that into account, you can run into problems or the people who are leading fail to move with the times disaster strikes and maybe that's what people thought of theodora a disaster a whore prostitute an actress one who was born into infamy something that we'll be talking about more later reached the highest position a female could. Perhaps it was only due to her marriage she accomplished what she did, but I'd like to think that it was her early years that framed the person she would become. This world was frightening for all members of society, including those at the top. And this is what Theodora took advantage of. She took advantage of the time she lived in. She was able to raise herself up in a way that really hadn't been seen since the great Egyptian female pharaohs. What makes this story, Theodora's story, different from other stories of children born at the same time, perhaps in similar circumstances, is that Theodora would escape their circumstances, would escape 
the predestiny of her birth. She got out. The likelihood that she would just go on this predetermined path that she would grow up, she would work a meaningless job and raise children and then die in her 40s, like most women did at the time. She refused to step down from any challenge in her life. That's why she accomplished so much more. She outlived most of the women born when she was. And she led a family whose lineage changed the way that we look at the world. Her career is unique. And as I said, unremarkably, the experience of her early years shaped the woman she would become. The few facts we can recover about her early life, along with the basic things we know about Byzantinian life at the time, are crucial. Two of the most important pieces of information about Theodora are that her father was the bear keeper of the green faction in Constantinople, and she was literate. For those of you listening to this podcast, I can assume that most of you know how common it was, or have an idea about how common it was to be a female and literate, especially a lowborn female and literate at any point in history much less a patriarchal society like Rome. But why was her father's position of so much importance? Theodore lived in a world where professions were handed down through generations, business owner to business owner, blacksmith to blacksmith, and entertainment to entertainment. As I continue her story, you will come to realize just how important these two aspects really became in her life especially as we do this episode, the first part, the early life of Theodora. Her father was renowned in Constantinople and much respected in the industry for his ability to handle the multitude of animals seen at shows within the city. His early passing was mourned by many people at every level of society. But it had an obvious deleterious effect on Theodora and her family, and her mother, her two sisters. Perhaps something similar to this song that I'm about to read was sung at Theodore's father's funeral as he was being carried across the wide avenues of Constantinople, circa 503. I had in my garden a fair pomegranate tree, but the wind came and uprooted it, taking it with him. I had in my garden a carnation, Red and sweet-smelling. Come, women neighbors, see how it's torn. My young groom, my darling, I call, but you don't speak. The sun has set, but your fair eyes no longer see the moon. Yesterday, today, and every day I call, I call you and speak to you. A fire rages in my heart, for your fair eyes no longer see. Theodore's mother, now a single woman in Constantinople, unable to feed or care for her three daughters, fought desperately to keep her family safe. She was lucky. Fate found them. Perhaps she found another man, perhaps willing to step into the role of father. Sort of. 
She found this man and wed shortly after the death of her husband. He didn't have a job, but Theodore's mother knew that there was a chance that she could appeal to the, the better forces of the factions, the entertainment factions within Constantinople. She marched down to the Hippodrome, an old, very large and intimidating theater with most of the factions in audience, and she pled her case to those factions, saying, My new husband can do this. My new husband can take the role of my ex. He can become the animal handler, the bear handler that you need. The green faction had already replaced her husband, but perhaps there was another one. And that's just what happened. She ended up saving her family. She, the medal that she showed to save her family was incredible to, to move on as quickly as she did, perhaps to a man she didn't even love. But after that, their family was saved. But I highlight the story because her mother showed the same instinct, intuition, strength of will that Theodora does time and time again. Always surviving, always striving, never being placated. Her life as an actress and being raised the way she did gave Theodora a glance at the many evils of society. And through that, her strength of will repeats itself over the course of this story. A true one-of-a-kind woman from history. Let us look into her early life before she came, became empress and shook the pillars of humanity. First on the list is a skill. Reading, writing, literacy. Reading was much more common than the skill of writing, and, as the historian Jay Heron points out, studies of literacy based on later documents suggest that the ability to read, if not to write, was more widespread among women in Byzantium than in medieval Europe. There's your interesting note or fact of the day. Women were better, well, more well-read in Byzantium and Rome, the, the beginning of the Dark Ages, than they were in medieval Europe when we start to think of an enlightening happening, you know, before the rebirth, before the Renaissance. Hmm. It's crazy to think. These were not skills that everyone possessed. Even wealthy women whose literacy came at their father's knee would rarely write on her own. But Theodora, a peasant, Theodora, destined to be an actress, could. Perhaps we find out later that it's this skill that sets her down the path to becoming Empress of Rome. That Theodora's mother and father, or their employment, played some role in her education. She had an older sister, Komido, who was an accomplished singer, and her career would have greatly been facilitated if she could read. The law of the land dictated that children should follow their parents' occupations, which means that Theodore's mother had been an actress and was thus herself likely to have been literate. I guess if there's one solace in becoming an actress in ancient Rome is that you could learn to read. Uh, yeah, 
I guess that's all right. It's something beyond me that women of the lowest class imaginable were taught one of the greatest skills a person could learn. The skill of language, of moving people with their words, both written and spoken. What a unique set of talents bestowed upon a young lady set to move through the lowest realms of the time. The lowest class of women were prostitutes and actresses, who were considered to be pretty much the same thing in Byzantine society, at least in the eyes of the upper classes. Fuck that. What a change compared to modern society. We almost deitize the the actresses and actors that portray life for us on the big screen. We follow their every movement. We hold them up on a pedestal, a, a shining beacon of light to aspire to. That wasn't always the case. Actresses in ancient Rome and the ancient societies were looked down upon. Brothels were present. They were all over the place, especially in busy ports of the empire such as the capital actresses were usually expected to deliver pornographic singing and dancing routines in theaters or public arenas like the hippodrome and that's kind of what gave it their dubious reputation to move through society to gain a following these women these women of these ancient societies often had to bear all, literally bear all to the world, for the world to see, to go anywhere, to make a living. And it, in Byzantinian society, there was very little movement between upper and lower classes. In short, with these enlightenments, knowing these things, it is even more astonishing the rise of the actress Theodora. I want to highlight some lies and its source. Procopius's vivid discussion of Theodora's teenage sex life in his secret history. This is where we get a lot of information about the young Theodora. It, it was probably composed as more of an exaggerated diatribe so that Procopius could distance himself from a, from a regime from Justinian and Theodora for which he would otherwise have seemed to have been an advocate. It's certainly not among the most accurate things that this historian ever wrote. And personally, I don't think it was intended to be. I thought, I think if you were to go back and read the, the secret history, it does exactly what it's supposed to do. Cast shadow and doubt upon Justinian and especially Theodora. Nor was it intended to be an important thing from Procopius's point of view was that he would have it to show people if, as kind of seemed possible, the widowed Justinian should suddenly be overthrown, right? He wrote it later, around 550, uh, really toward the latter stages of Theodora's life. In some cases, given that the secret history is compiled around, as I said, 550, more than 30 years after that Theodora she had left the stage, we can be certain that Procopius's was describing events of which he had no first-hand knowledge. So second-hand things, things that he heard about. In the course of his vitriolic assault on Theodora's character, for instance, he confuses her occupation and attributes to Theodora remarks drawn from books about famous sayings by prostitutes that had been in circulation for years. Right? You can, you can match it up. Some of the things that he says he took from other books. 
I understand, right? Just as I'm taking some of the information from the two books I mentioned earlier to share in this podcast. But the difference is Procapius is doing it to, like I said, belittle somebody. And he, as it seems, was kind of a bit hung up on sex. Uh, and he, he may or may not have sexually assaulted a young vandal woman in the wake of a successful invasion of North Africa in 533. And he also intimated his activities to his readers, and he harangued them at length on the evils of rape, even though he did so himself. As for Theodora, Procipius believed that she, like Justinian, was a demon who had assumed human form with the aim of destroying humanity. Well, being a demon, she needed to learn by heart various aspects of the art of sorcery. But Procipius says that she did this exactly. His main interest is in showing that Justinian and Belisarius, his own boss, were the weakest of men, controlled by wives who lived lives of utter immorality and responsible for the empire's ruination. That's the kind of life that he sees that Theodora led when she was younger. And remember, she was basically born into becoming an actress. Her father was a handler of animals. And one thing that I haven't noted is that the troops that these factions within Constantinople, green faction, white faction, blue faction, that led these plays, that had these singers, were very powerful and persuading the people. They had agents all over the city. It kind of sounds like something you would read in a fantasy book. But it's true. The, the emperors and empresses used these factions to disseminate uh, information they use these factions to to gain a foothold on what the communities around constantinople were thinking it was a beautiful system and theodore was thrust right into the middle of it and while theodore was still a child procipius assures us even though he wasn't there, of course, that Theodora got her start as a prostitute by accompanying her older sister, Kumido, who, when she went out to perform. And remember, Kumido was a fabulous singer. She would provide services, right? She would do the down and dirty to any who were not Kumido's clients and specialize in offering anal sex, a subject that appears to fascinate Procipius to no end. She also did things to slave and other members of the lower classes. When she reached puberty, she could take the stage in her own right. She showed absolutely no talent, again, according to Procipius, apparently, and so was relegated to the chorus. And he implies, too, that she was unable to move into the more specialized sexual world of the higher class courtesans, which we find untrue later on. But all the same, she seems to have been wickedly funny and soon to have become a star comic. Perhaps we need not take Procipius' statement about her non-existent talent too seriously. Because we know she was great. She, especially in uh, memory, right? In, in miming, in performing these other acts uh, of comedy and stage talent. And it was told that she was able to keep busy to have these sexual relations in this pre-contraceptive society by having regular abortions, except 
course, when she didn't, Procipius admits to mention that she gave birth to a daughter during her years, kind of as maybe an actress as an, and a, a courtesan. Um, he does invent a son for her, which the father took from her at arms at birth. Does Not true. Um, it said that he raised the boy in the province of Arabia. He goes on, later emerged to visit his mother as empress, then disappear without a trace. Although, th those things are unverified. We we never hear anything of her having a son. Uh, and history doesn't really put anything on it, especially for such an important person. You would think it would show up. Here's another quote from The Secret History. Often, with everyone watching in the theater, she would strip and stand, undressed at the center of attention, wearing only cloth covering her breasts and crotch. And she wouldn't have been embarrassed to show these off as well. But no one was allowed to appear totally naked without covering for their private parts. Dressed like this, she would lie on her back on the stage, and attendants who'd been hired for the task would sprinkle grain on her crotch and geese who'd been trained for this purpose, would eat them off of her one by one. When she stood up, she was not blushing, but appeared to be proud of her performance. She wasn't just shameless. She was the particular inventor of shameless acts. What seems so odd to me and his preoccupation with sex, and as a reminder, this is not a show for children to listen to. For fuck's sake... Yeah, anybody maybe younger than 12 probably shouldn't be listening to this show. That's not true. If you want to have your children listening to the show, I don't care. Do it. Um, there's some good stuff in here. Good shit. And uh, language is only what we make of it, right? Just like time, just like uh, anything. It, it, it's something that we constructed as people. So if I say fuck and you think that is negative, that's, in your mind, a negative thing. Uh, but I I would counteract that by saying that we can take just about any language and make it negative. And as a reminder, it's the History Uncensored pod podcast. I really don't like censorship. So yeah, let your kids fucking listen. Uh, yeah, good for them. Back to the podcast. Talking about his preoccupations with sex, uh, what seems odd to me is that with his pre you know predilection towards sex is that he didn't enjoy this idea of theodore uh, and her solicitous acts i contemplate that perhaps this man 10 years her senior at some time was scorned perhaps by theodore and thus set about his work to change her history to change the way people and specifically the people of constantinople thought of her um And still, as anyone would look up Theodore on the internet, they would invariably find a prostitute. And for that, we can thank a lonely, well, albeit well-written male historian. I fucking love history, man. Oh, this shit is great. Uh, very, very even in distribution. Very even in the, the unbiased views of historians that we have to look back at. But Procopius's torrent of abuse is worth paying some attention to when he offers the names of certain particular individuals. And we should really take what he has to say with a healthy dose of skepticism. Um, there's often reason to think that beneath his inventions and lies, 
some semblance of fact, even if he is merely sneering at official propaganda. Take, for example, Theodore's efforts to help prostitutes find a new life and the well-advertised halfway house for women leaving the profession that she established across the Bosphorus Strait from Constantinople. Whatever the truth of any of these stories are, the important point here is what they tell us about what educated people wanted to believe about members of the imperial household. They took it as fact that Roman royals would order the murder of those they didn't like. This is kind of truth, right? These are the dictators, the individuals that lived at this time. They had complete authority to pretty much do whatever they wanted. They could murder family members or non-family members with a and they wouldn't hesitate to put their own interests ahead of the state. For those educated people, the good empress had to be pious, chaste, philanthropic, and a bad empress must be greedy, intemperate, sexually voracious witch, or an ally of demonic, demonic forces. Is this all starting to kind of ring over and over, right? January 536, we're kind of moving a little bit of head, a little bit ahead. Justinian issued rules concerning the six processions that would be held in Constantinople to celebrate a new consul's taking up of his office. According to Justinian, the fifth of these processions goes to the theater, which they say is for the porne, and where on the stage there are comedies, tragedies, musical performances, and the theater is open to all spectacles for the eyes and ears. Porne primarily means prostitutes. That's what they thought about theater, right? But they're just prostitutes. They're just selling themselves to the crowd. But here the word designates a group of actresses, which is why it is possible that when John of Ephesus uses the word pornian brothel in classical Greek to describe the place where Theodore came from, he may actually be referring to her past as an actress. There is no reason to doubt that Theodora had been an actress or even that she had been a mime, meaning an actress in what were essentially situational comedies because those were some of the only roles open to women, including, you know, like singing. But to be an actress, you know, you could really only be a mime, almost like a, a stage prop for the audience. And here we have a portrait of Cometer, her older sister, her older, very talented sister, was a rising star on the city stages. She was a very young, beautiful actress uh, or courtesan, according to the terminology of the secret history, accompanied by her younger sister, who wasn't quite yet mature, Theodora, who was just as beautiful, dressed and perhaps coiffed as a boy. It's a scene that recalls 17th century genre paintings, both French and Italian, depicting the multicolored world of the Commedia dell'arte, but it also recalls how theater was destiny for Theodora, much more than simply a family-imposed duty. It was a natural propensity and individual drive that went hand-in-hand hand with her determination to be second to no one, not even her older sister. It is doubtful, though, that the sisters performed artistic plays together. More likely, they acted in variety sketches, with very little dialogue and much physical posturing and gesturing, similar to uh, shows designed to please and entertain an undemanding audience. The sketches were chock full of intrigues, betrayals, poisonings, fisticuffs, magic spells, serenades, and forsaken women. 
On the other hand, theater, which is where Theodore and her family ended up, met with solid disapproval from official society. And I've mentioned this. I mentioned this in the Gladiator episodes. Because of Christian moral principles, I don't think only because of that, but because of this or because of the ancient standards inherited from a class aristocracy, right? That old idea of infamy or from a melding of these two elements into a new morality, which really placed actresses, again, on the level of prostitutes, this very bottom level of society. This religious fundamentalism distrusted any collective activity that was somehow connected with the ancient traditions of city life. Kind of looked askance at the baths of the Hippodrome, but mostly at the theater, where it detected the seeds of vice and temptation the antithesis to Christianity. Any generous use of the body or generous act toward the body seemed to conflict with the kind of love that is given to God and received from him. That's a very masculine way of thinking of God, in my opinion. The ancient morality founded on pagan beliefs, as we already kind of looked at, placed entertainers on the lowest rung, regarding them as necessary only insofar as they represented the expression of intrinsic pathos of collective, collective life. Almost its release valve. Apart from that function, actors were indefensible individuals. Nobody cared for them. Unless, of course, they needed a release, and then, you know, they were there. Yeah, sometimes history's bullshit. And uh, I mean, in this case, history is definitely bullshit. And it's so crazy to think that as uh, people, we can go from something so on one side of the coin to the other, we go from these are barely people at all to deifying them, right? It's this progression of human societies this humanitarian side of people that only want to see good things done i think it's so much stronger than we realize it's why we've made so much progress recently it's just a shame that it took so long to do theodora eventually progressed in the troop, right? She moved through the underpinnings of society and eventually elevated, you know, to the top of, of her craft. Probably made some good friends. Um, Chrysomalo, for instance, who was certainly her companion in later life, but one can imagine that the world in which she worked was intensely competitive, and that success was a zero-sum game with plainly tangible benefits for the winners. Right? If you won, you got the prize. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. There were no doubts, quarrels amongst actors between them, fueled by jealousies and dissatisfactions of one sort or another, libations. Who knows? But later, Theodora showed herself to be a fierce enemy. And at one point, Theodora's decision that she made as a teenager to supplement her income with money she could make by taking lovers. And as much as I kind of harp on Procipius, it's definitely the truth that at some point, or as far as we can tell, right, at some point she did supplement her income by having sex with people. And it appears that she 
kind of enjoyed it. Um, I suppose if you're going to have sex, why not enjoy it? But as in the secret history, which Procopius, as we have seen, embellished with borrowings from books on famous prostitutes, for instance, his claim that Theodore wished her nipples had large enough holes to accommodate penises, for she would have then have five orifices available. Uh, we do find amongst the rabble that there is evidence that's kind of revealing, although that is some fucked up shit. I don't know if I'd really want to see nipples like that. Theodora's situation at this point is not dissimilar from that of other women that we've met in other centuries, especially from antiquity, you know, right? Independent women who made their way in the world, not women who are trafficked or compelled to work in the sex industry, but who chose to do so. In antiquity, young, vivacious professional women would attract admirers happy to supplement their income and provide them with additional comforts and luxuries. And some of these admirers held the highest positions in, like, in, in the state, right? They held the highest positions available. It was common for gentlemen of this era to have both a wife and a mistress, right? A, a wife for bearing children and a mistress for sex, especially among the higher latitudes of an aristocracy. Perhaps it wasn't her skill or her personality or persona as an actress that cemented her in modern mythology as one of the most celebrated of Constantinople's empresses, but rather her verve and her lust as a lover, her ability to move amongst a society that she had no part in being, she had no she shouldn't have been there, right? There, she had no part in, in being a part of it. Um, it was probably due to this. It's most likely due to this that she eventually landed in the situation she did. Here, another quote from The Secret History. And as she wantoned with her lover, she always kept bantering them. And by toying with new devices in intercourse, she always succeeded in winning the hearts of the licentious, licentious to her, for she did not even expect that the approach should be made by the man she was with, but on the contrary, she herself, with wanton jests and with clownish posturing of with her hips, would tempt all who came along, especially if they were beardless youths. Time to corrupt those young boys. Indeed, there was never anyone such as a slave to pleasure in all forms. For many a time, she would go to a community dinner with ten youths or even more, all of ex exceptional bodily vigor who had made a business of fornification. She would lie with all her banqueted companions the whole night long. And when they were all too exhausted to go on, she would go to their attendants. Thirty in all. Hot damn, that's a, that, that is a lot of sex. I mean, that's that's a lot of penises. It's impressive. Um, it's shitty that, you know, that's where she had to go to get money or to, you know, cement herself with a higher society. But she was tenacious. I just want to say this. Procopius doesn't really make things up from scratch. He kind of embellishes and sometimes grossly, but he knows or 
Sometimes he fails to tell the whole story, which we've seen. If someone told him that Theodora had been a whore, he felt free to depict her as the world's most plen plenteous prostitute. We heard that she had been an actress to call her a stripper. As we know, she had been an actress and she had relationships with men who paid her to sleep with them. Given her family background, it's understandable. It would have been surprising if she had not pursued the career she did. As her beauty was greater than any eloquence, it was said, Theodore did not need many words. Her, lover, her lovers, on the other hand, might carry on promising her many things dazzled by her face and her body. Theodora knew the art of listening. For her, it was closely tied to the art of obtaining. Isn't that the truth, though? Think about it for just a moment. I think one of the easiest ways to obtain what you want is to listen reasonably to the dissensions of others, right? To to listen to your partner, to listen. Uh, it's a skill that very few people have in copious amounts, and it appears that Theodora was excellent at it. Even if they weren't entirely raptured by that person, they were able to listen fully and succinctly to the words that they were saying. And by doing so, she knew the buttons to push. She knew where to go and when to do it. She knew because she listened. She asked. She listened. She asked again. Trial and error, right? The basic tenets of, of science, of, of understanding the world around us. It really starts with asking in listening. But when we look back at her history, we don't know much of Theodora's lovers. We know that she gave up the stage at some point to become the concubine of a nam named Hecubulus, who was a senior enough official to be appointed as a provincial governor. And what this suggests was that she was moving in relatively exalted circles. So she did this pretty quickly, right? Pretty much by the time that she was 20, she was moving in circles way beyond the circle she was born to and seen as a jewel, seen as something precious to the people that she attended. That's power. That's that's a lot of power for somebody that is looked down on by society in a way that I can't understand. We know that she didn't want to live out her life as an actress. She wanted more. She wanted to be second to no one. And her career might not in any event have been expected to last beyond her early 20s, right? That's especially when, uh, you know, as as you get older, you know, you start looking older. And, and as an actress, you would want the full reflection of your beauty and, uh, to be an actress. And facing retirement in the near term, right? She was probably seeking a potential permanent relationship. It was difficult, especially bearing in mind her official status as a disreputable person. Thankfully, Procopius's The Secret History hadn't been written yet. You know, that probably wouldn't have done her justice. But at Hecabulus's side, Theodora could be no more than his concubine. She was probably officially even introduced as an escort or maybe even a maid. This was the meaning of the most shameful services mentioned in the secret history, right? Yeah, this is my concubine. 
And I'm sure she was so much more than that. Of course, in the capital, an imperial governor could not marry a meme actress, no matter how widely she was celebrated. Even as a new Helen of the civilized Christian world, no matter how much others envied his sharing his free time with his bed with such a jewel of the East, Theodora was now in a position, if she was interested, to learn something about the way the Empire was run. She would certainly have learned how to live in a palace, to handle a large staff. Even when she ventured out, she would have seen the large churches on the palace's east and west sides. She might well have attended the theater just outside city walls. She must have found the idea and the reality of being totally dependent on a man unacceptable. She, like the cranes in her parasite, was living in a cage. She probably used her body to sway him, alternately seducing and rebuffing him. Then she may have started to think and speak more frankly, first with jibs and then with increasingly blunt and harsh judgments. We don't know this for sure, but most likely she finally began to mock him openly. Only so long can you keep somebody under your thumb before it bites back. And yet this infamous woman took liberties with a powerful man, a magistrate. Liberties that not even a lady was. Eventually he became offended to put his dignity as a mighty official before the body, the face, the lips of the divine Theodora. He summed up his full honor as a Roman citizen against his defenseless concubine and drove her away. Probably at this time, either pregnant with his daughter or having just given birth. At my estimate, it would make sense historically to send her away at the onset of the pregnancy so he could acquit himself of the situation. And Theodora was trying to cement her relationship with this man. And what better way for, in her mind, perhaps to cement this relationship than to give birth to a child? He did not want any of it. As I said, he sent her on her way. Perhaps it was them trying to, you know, nullify the relationship to try and finally move past certain things and it just couldn't happen. He wouldn't allow it. It was for Theodora the most unexpected of situations, the most impossible of developments. The young woman was cast out on the northern shores of an unfamiliar continent that was not her home. And at this point, she was in Africa. And yet, her unlikely destiny stretched invisibly before her. A return home to an imperial future. She proceeded to provide in her usual way, this putting her body to work at its unlawful traffic. She first went to Alexandria. Later, after making the round of the whole East, she made her way back to Byzantium, plying her trade in each city, a trade which men could not call by name, I think, without forfeiting forever the compassion of God. As if the devil could not bear that any spot should be unacquainted with the wantonness of Theodora. In the end, it was Theodora's choice and her departure, which are important not just from the point of view of this chronology um, or her psychology. It must have been seen, like, as far as anthropologically, insofar as a radical change in the perspective of a woman who had already moved up from being a troop courtesan of taking licentious lovers 
to being a selective knight, to moving among the highest possible realms of society. Just as she had glimpsed a light at the end of the underground passageways of the Nian, Theodora saw a light shining ahead in her life's corridor. The possibility of becoming a lady. And that is why she gave up all other certainties of or attractive possibilities and followed Hecabolus. And by 521, 522, her acting career had certainly been finished. When the evident stability of her relationship with Justinian prompted Justin to amend the marriage laws, thus allowing her to become Justinian's wife, right? But it is more likely that her career had ended four or five years earlier with the birth of her daughter, as she made her way back to Byzantium, a near broken woman. The date of that birth is nowhere directly recorded, but the fact that Theodore had a grandson named Anastasius, who by the year 543, she wished to marry to the daughter of her friend, Antonia, gives us a rough idea when the girl is born. Anastasius was probably a child at the time of his betrothal, around 15 when he married, slightly before Theodore's death in 548 suggesting he was probably born around 533. Remember, grandson. It could not have been earlier because her father-in-law, a nephew of the deceased Emperor Anastasius, was in exile from 532 to 533 when the marriage between his son or grandson or whatever the case is and Theodore's daughter marked an important political rapprochement. Basically, what I'm saying is, given all of the facts, given what would later be her record in trying to eliminate child prostitution, it is unreasonable to think that Theodora would have been unaware of the potential health risks for her daughter if she married before she reached her mid-teens. The latest the girl could have been born is probably 518, and it's possible she was born a year or two earlier. The significance of the girl's birth is simply that by knowing that a child would bring her professional life to an end, Theodora must have already decided to leave the stage. Most likely, her decision to carry on with pregnancy was motivated by the relationship she was in at the time, which, in turn, again, that would suggest that the father was Hecubolus. Procopius was kind of right. I wouldn't say about the wantonness, but she definitely made her way around the Eastern Roman Empire, and back to Byzantium. She learned so many things. She altered her religious view during this time. She changed the woman that she would become. She became more learned. She moved with societies of all different ranks. And it's at this point that she probably made her way back to one of those factions, that the, those troop factions, the, the green, the white, the blue and became an agent of them, where she started recording and disseminating information within it. And it's important to note that. And it's at this point that you start seeing, at least in our histories, more than just one author write about her at this point in her life. Some of these are Syrian authors, and they see her as basically a saint, right? Somebody to change right somebody to precipitate change to move forward in the world especially in a world that was appeared to be moving further and further backward every day 
it was during this time in her life, this time when she left Hecabolus, that she began to move in powerful anti-Chalcedonian circles. And it was within these circles, within these acting communities, um, that she would have been most likely in whatever work that they had been given in which she joined that would have established the factional connections enabling her to meet Justinian when she returned to the capital. And absent divine intervention, we must settle for the notion that Theodora met Justinian via her work as an agent of the blues, right? As an agent of these acting um, facilitators. Emperors were aware that these informants tended to edit reports they sent in so as to serve their own interests. An emperor would know that individual communities had a vested interest in making sure that he knew only what they wanted him to know. And he would be aware, too, that his own officials, these own people, were often self-serving and dishonest bastards because everybody was out for number one. And it still seems everybody's out for number one. Not much of that has changed. To circumvent these limitations, he would employ people like Theodora to check the veracity of what he was being told. And here enters Justinian. And this idea of Theodora as succubus, right? How else would she have claimed such a high-ranking man, even though Justinian was born a peasant? The prelude to this diabolical theme had already been sounded at the time of Theodora's debut on the stage. And in the back rooms of Constantinople, for her unnamed lovers had supposedly reported that, at least according to Procopius, that some sort of demon descended upon them at night and drove them from the room in which they were spending the night with her. Here we see the archaic tradition of the succubus, a mysterious female monster who is believed to have sexual relations with unsuspecting men during the night, and then revived with its gender switch. But Procopius's insidious creature is chiefly a foreshadowing of Justinian, not only because according to rumors that he practiced satanic sex, but because throughout the secret history, Flavius Petrus Sabatius Justinian, Justinius is a demonic figure, not a man. And they say that Justinian's mother stated to some of her intimates that he was not the son of her husband, Sabatius, nor of any man. For when she was about to conceive him, a demon visited her in the evening. He was invisible, but affected her with a certain impression that he was there with her as a man having intercourse with a woman, and then disappeared as in a dream. All of these things really just sound like metaphors for horrible men intervening in sexual situations. I don't know if that's true, because ancient times, it's really hard to go back and look at those things. But at least in my mind, that's what I'm seeing, right? Is inventions of people to substantiate what has happened to them. We see that now in PTSD and in other situations where we invent situations to make them seem better or perhaps that we ourselves are not at fault for what has befallen us. And what easier way to do that than to say that I was, you know, visited by a demon at night. Um, And I can think of many men and women who I could classify in the demon category right people i wouldn't want to be around but maybe that's it and that that's just my two cents there but who was justinian what was he like 
he was already a powerful figure at the time and that he and Theodora began their relationship. He was possibly quite lonely. As far as we can tell, he had led a somewhat ascetic life up to that point, right? His failure to marry, he was now in his 30s, um, is probably attributable to his unwillingness of members of the aristocracy to hand over their daughters to the son of a peasant. Those bastards. Even though he was now a high-ranking general. But maybe it's also a lack of social confidence on his part. I think we would call that now imposter syndrome, right? We don't think that we belong in whatever part of society that we currently reside or whatever work we're currently doing. We don't think we're good enough. I can see that, right? I, I think at some point... Almost everybody goes through some of these feelings unless you're confident to the point of uh, arrogance. But we know of no prior relationships than uh, Theodora, and there's reason to think that this was because he had very few. We know of no illegitimate children, and not even Procopius, who despised him, suggested that he spent his time chasing ladies around the palace. Rather, he's presented as a deeply solitary person who suffered from insomnia, I can relate, and who ate very little, can't relate, while being given to intense theological reflection. Sounds just like a lonely dude who likes to think a lot. But one aspect of Justinian's character was very pronounced throughout his life, was his deep personal loyalty. And you don't see that with people, really, at... at any point throughout history, right? I just got done talking about how almost everybody is out for number one. But there are very few people, when you think about it, that will stick their neck out for maybe you or Justinian. or. But Justinian was that person. You, If you were loyal to him, he kept you and wanted you as that friend. I imagine it would be very hard to betray him. And... This It was this deep personal loyalty, and he showed, in some instances, to a fault. And possibly as a consequence of this loyalty, he seems to have been able to delegate business to his subordinates. Again, something probably more of us wish we could do. Who's, I mean, I'm not great at delegating. But at times, perhaps, he could be indecisive, especially when these subordinates disagreed with each other. He seems to have been even-tempered and to have possessed a strong sense of duty, great qualities for a general he may have been something of a romantic though he certainly dreamed big dreams and he enjoyed history as well as theology and i can get behind that and the friends that he had men who rose under him into positions of authority belisarius and Cytus, both bodyguards of his who became generals trebonian a successful lawyer and john the cappadocian who would become his finance minister, all came from outside the traditional aristocracy. People that would even claim that he was pagan because of his his beliefs, possibly because his interests were more philosophical than theological. What this may tell us in the story of Theodora, deeply as he held his own religious views, there is no theological limit litmus test for becoming a member of his inner circle. If there had been, Theodora would never have been allowed in. Somehow, Theodora came to Justinian's notice. We don't know exactly how. 
maybe she was really good as an agent lose um perhaps we can imagine a certain spark of intelligence or wit in her reports that set her apart from others we cannot know but we do know that justinian fell very rapidly and head over heels in love with her our ability to reconstruct what happened is facilitated marginally by Procopius again, who, as noted earlier, says they married only after Justinian in 521-ish, 522, forced Justin, after the death of his wife, uh, to make a law legalizing marriages between former actresses and men of high status. And here's what we're going to do. We are going to end this episode there We'll get into the marriage of Justinian and Theodora next time. We'll get into the plague. We'll get into the changes. We'll get into how they ruled as a couple. But this, I think, is a really good beginning. The The idea of how Theodora became who she was and the limitations that were placed upon her from the death of her father, we'll say, at an early age. Long story short, very difficult life raised as an actress not a great singer didn't have many opportunities kind of growing up especially with such a talented older sister kind of left by the wayside she did the only thing that made sense to her and that was to use her body for personal gain i'm not gonna blame her and when you look back at history and you see what she she's accomplished um, it's pretty incredible but to any female listeners out there do you think you could have done the same in her situation do you think you could have given your mind body and soul to multitudes of men to, to make this happen I know and it shouldn't be about gender right um, I know I, I wouldn't be able to to make that choice um but yeah, just very difficult decisions and it's incredible to where she ended up. And as I said, next time, hopefully it'll be less than two months um, before I get back on here. But next time we'll pick back up with the the marriage and the law. I really start out with the law that preceded the marriage and then talk about how Justinian and, more importantly, Theodora ruled Constantinople and the Eastern Roman Empire. Jesus fuck, it has been so good to be back in the, the saddle and doing a podcast again. I know it's been a really long time, and it's just felt good. I, I appreciate to any of you who have stuck around uh, and still listen. Hopefully... This one was as good as my previous ones. I know I'm a little bit rusty in the history department, but again, thank you guys so much. If you want to reach out to me, please do so. Uh, I have a new email address that you can reach out to history. You that's the letter U. So history, the letter U dot pod at gmail.com. You can reach out to me there. You can chat. You can give me ideas. If you have questions, I'll answer them. Um, you know, and more than likely, I'll even put it on the podcast uh, as far as some listener mail stuff. As I said in a previous one a long time ago, I really would like to get more listener mail. 
it could be good or bad criticisms or juxtapositions i don't care send me your thoughts um your feedback your ideas uh, i'd love to have them especially now that i'm trying to get back into the swing of things so guys this has been another long-awaited recording of history uncensored as always i'm your host seth michaels find me on twitter facebook instagram all of that shit you know the deal i hate this part i hate self-promoting five stars if you haven't done it yet give me a five-star review on apple if you don't i'll sit on you um but other than that uh, i love you guys and thanks again and we'll see you soon oh wait i forgot my send-off never forget in history we always remember still listening at this point what the fuck are you doing but seriously thank you um one more thing that if you made it this far i did want to mention and i'll be putting this earlier in my other podcast i do have another podcast out there and it's for any gamers do you have gamers or dads or gaming dads or both or whatever the case is I met up with two random people from the internet, and we talk about being gamers, the history of gaming, as well as what it's like to be a, a gamer dad in modern America. So be sure to check that out, and that's Dads and D-Pads, and you can find that pretty much everywhere you find this podcast. So enjoy that. Again, that's Dads and D-Pads. See you there.